Legend has it that in 1860, the famous French acrobat Charles Blondin was doing a tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. It's a thousand foot span, 160 feet above the rushing water. He goes across, he turns around, he walks back. Then he gets a wheelbarrow, puts the wheelbarrow on the tightrope, and walks across, turns around, puts the wheelbarrow back on, and walks back. And when he gets over, he sees this little boy, eight, nine years old, who is just so taken with what he has done and is just clapping as feverishly as he can. And, and Charles looks at him and says, do you think that I could uh, do that with somebody sitting in the wheelbarrow and not fall? And the little boy, just like a little boy would say, well, yes, sir, I surely do, sir. Charles said, all right then, get in. We're going to be talking about trust today, and, and that's really the measure of trust, isn't it? Not just what do you think, but what are you willing to get in with? Do we really believe that there is what joy, what joy for those who put their hope in the name of the Lord intellectually, or are we doing that? Are we actually doing it? Are we actually getting in the wheelbarrow? so to speak. Last week we talked about the source of lack. We're in this series titled Life Without Lack and we opened that series with a a deep dive into verse 1 of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Last week we talked about the source of lack, that there are dark valleys in our lives, that there are enemies that make their way into our lives and that God is with us in those moments. But we talked about the source of lack and it really goes back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And the good news that Jesus has overcome all of that and undone all of those forces that contributed to the fall and that introduced lack into our lives. And he is the solution to a life without lack. He is the reason that we can even talk about this. And so if you've missed one of those two weeks, I highly recommend you go out and get uh, the podcast, go to the website, go to YouTube or Facebook. Uh, There are still a few books available. We've sold over 40 of these books, which is just very impressive to me that that many people are taking this and taking it seriously and reading these books. Um, So if you need a copy of the book, uh, you can still get one out at the table. And Whiff is out there with uh, another item that might be of 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 interest to you, which is our life chain, which will be taking place next, to, uh, next Sunday, next Sunday, October 2nd. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to just come in solidarity uh, and pray for uh, the sanctity of life from birth to natural death. So if that is of, of interest to you, or if you want to get a book, you can head out into the lobby after the service and, and grab one there um, and sign up to be a part of that next Sunday afternoon at 2. So this week, as I promised last week, we would get into the key to life, the key to life. And if you were here last week, you might be thinking, okay, what's the key to life? Well, we're speaking specifically about the key to a life without lack as we continue this series, as we continue to dive into this. And and you'll probably understand when I say after last week in particular, living a life without lack in this broken and fallen world is not an easy task. It's not easy to to go through life living a life without lack when there is so clearly lack all around us. And, And we can experience lack 
pretty much at any moment, we can, we can even be overwhelmed by it. But the key to a life without lack, we're going to see today, is trust in God. In fact, spoiler alert, that's our bottom line today. Those of you that like to get the bottom line early, today's your day. The key to a life without lack, the key to life itself, is trust in God. Deep, consistent, abiding trust in God. And that's what not only enables us to live a life without lack, but that is what enables us to be a witness in this world in a very, very powerful way. When the world around us sees us going through the difficulties and the challenges and the trials of life with a peace and a contentment and a a trust, a deep trust in the sufficiency of God, it's a powerful witness. And they see us go through medical diagnosis, or they see us go through financial hardship, or they see us go through the various storms of life with grace and with peace that doesn't really make sense. It's a powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. And so today and in the next two weeks, we're really digging into the heart of this series and the heart of the book of what enables us to live a life without lack. And the first element is trust in God, deep, deep trust in God. We'll be looking at that today. And next week, we'll be looking at death to self, that we combine our trust in God with our death to ourselves. And then finally, the presence of agape love, that when we trust in God, when we die to ourselves, and when we choose to live a life of love, of agape love, of self-sacrificing surrender, we are well on our way to living a life without lack. In fact, as Willard says, when faith... Death to self and love are alive in you. You will find that hope and joy pervade your entire life as a natural result. I'll read that again. When faith, death to self, and love are alive in you, you will find that hope and joy pervade your entire life as a natural result. What was the song that we just sang? What joy, what joy for those whose hope is in the name of the Lord. You don't want to know what's really cool? Michael had no idea I was going to share that quote <laughs> when he picked that song. And I had to smile as we were singing and I knew it was coming, but it just lines up so beautifully with what we're talking about. So let's dive into what Psalm 23 has to teach us about faith in God as the key to life. We'll read this together. In fact, actually, I'm going to try to stay off the notes. I've been working on I challenged many of you to memorize Psalm 23 and memorize it to the, to the degree that you could recite it in front of a couple hundred people. So here goes. A couple weeks ahead of schedule. If I get tripped up, we'll look and we'll try again next week. But here's what Psalm 23 says in the New International Version. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
I think I forgot he anoints my head with oil, and I think I slipped into the NIV 84 version on the last verse. But we'll get there by the end, right? And it certainly got your attention. You were waiting with bated breath, and that's part of the point. And so, as you think about this famous psalm, in the sense of the key to life being trust in God, you see there is an overwhelming sense of deep, deep trust From the very beginning, from the very beginning to the very end, this is a psalm about trusting our shepherd and declaring that we lack nothing even in the midst of a world full of lack. So there is this overwhelming sense of deep trust and dependence upon God, upon his presence, upon his goodness, upon his love and his mercy, upon his ability and his consistency in life. All of that, I believe, summarized In that declaration, I lack nothing at the outset, which we talked about in verse 1. Verse 2, though, I find it interesting to consider that hungry sheep don't lie down in green pastures, do they? Hungry sheep eat in green pastures. Anxious sheep eat in green pastures because they're not quite sure if there's going to be enough to go around. But hungry sheep don't lie down in green pastures. Only the well-fed, the secure The confident sheep would lie down in a green pasture. In verse 4, when we're talking about dark valleys and not being afraid of evil, but being comforted, how is that true? How is that possible? How can you walk through the darkest valley and not be afraid and not be anxious about the evil that is surrounding you? Well, you do it because you know who's with you. You do it because you know that even in the darkest valley, he is with me. His rod and his staff, they will comfort me. Did you notice that the the whole psalm takes a turn at the end of verse 3, at the beginning of verse 4? In the first three verses, he's talking about the Lord, and he's talking about he. He does this. He leads. He guides. He comforts. He does these different things. In verse 4, it switches, and now it's addressing God specifically. In our darkest valleys, we can cry out to God specifically and say, even though I'm in this dark valley... I am not afraid, God. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then in verse 6, the conclusion to this psalm. Surely, surely your goodness and love. That word surely there can also be translated as certainly. Or only, only your goodness and love. Or nothing but your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And so it forms a powerful conclusion to this psalm, not just the unfailing and steadfast love of God, but also his goodness, surely your goodness. Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that his goodness is with you always because he is with you always? And if he is with you, his goodness is with you because he is only good. He is only good. And so that is why we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever, for eternity. And the psalmist is saying that even in these difficult circumstances, I'm not afraid. Even in the presence of my enemies, you're there with me. You're anointing my head with oil. You're giving me what I need. You're calling me into your service. And I have no doubt whatsoever that your goodness and your unfailing love will be with me forever. And I will be in your presence forever. So where does this type of faith come from? 
Where does the type of faith that the psalmist has, where does the type of faith that David has, where does that come from? That's what we're going to be looking at today because it doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come by accident. It comes through intentionality. Doubt comes naturally, doesn't it? Doubt is easy to come by, especially in the dark valleys, especially in the presence of our enemies. And that is why we talked about the source of lack. And do you remember when we talked about the fall and we talked about the source of lack in the world all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, what was the initial element that introduced lack into the world? It was mistrust between man and God, between the humans and God. And then that quickly spread to mistrust between humans and humans, between man and wife. And they start blaming each other. Yeah, you know, but the woman you gave me, and she blames the snake. The snake's the only one that didn't pass the buck. Have you ever noticed that? And so it was that mistrust, and I'm not quite sure I emphasized that strongly enough. That mistrust between us and God is the source of lack in our lives. And that when we trust God completely, entirely, without question... There is no lack in our life. When we trust his goodness, when we trust that he is with us, when we trust that he is for us, when we trust that he is able, there is no lack. In fact, another author, I was reminded of a quote that I have reflected on many times. Her name is Alicia Sholay, and she says, if in our spiritual guts, did you know you have spiritual guts? (laughs) If in our spiritual guts... We view God as inconsistent, absent, angry, or stingy. What we call trust may be a tentative half-dependence with a ready backup plan. And that first time I read that, it was very convicting. Because what I had cultivated as trust for much of my life was more of a faith in faith. If I just believe enough, if I just have enough faith, if I just believe hard enough, and I was putting my faith more in my faith than I was in the object of my faith, which was to be God. If in our spiritual guts we believe, really believe, that God is inconsistent, absent, angry, or stingy, then it would make sense to have a backup plan. But if instead we really believe that God loves us, that he is with us, that he is constant in his love for us, and that he is lavish in his love for us, then it would make no sense not to trust him. And I think that's why Jesus said a number of different times that it's not so much the size of your faith. It's the presence. It's the depth. It's the consistency of your faith. He talked about faith the size of a mustard seed. And mustard seeds aren't very big. But if we have pure faith the size of a mustard seed, that grows. Just like the mustard seed grows into a large plant. He talked about the faith of a child. What is unique about the faith of a child? A childlike faith is a consistent faith. It's a constant faith. Children that go, grow up in functional homes where their parents can provide them with the things they need, just like our Heavenly Father can provide us with the things that we need, they don't doubt. They're not worried at breakfast about lunch. 
They know lunch is coming. They might be curious as to what we're having, and if they don't like it or there's a lot of vegetables, they'll eat a little more breakfast or they'll get a snack around 11 so that they're not so hungry, right? But they're not worried about lunch because they know that their father, their mother, their parents will provide what they need. They don't see them as stingy, angry, absent, or inconsistent. And when we really come to love God and trust God, With a deep and consistent faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed can grow and can multiply its impact in our own lives and in the lives of others and can cast many more seeds as that mustard seed grows and becomes a large plant. It will bear more seeds and those seeds will grow. And this is what a life without without lack looks like. And so our bottom line today, the key to life, the key to a life without lack is trust in God. It's a deep, constant trust in God, in his goodness, in his love. In fact, I would say there is a direct relationship between the depth of your trust and the constancy of your trust and the presence of lack in your life. The more trust you have in God, the less lack you will experience. And the less trust you have in God, the more lack you will experience. And so as we consider this, as we keep diving into this, we need to, we need to get a good biblical definition of trust. And, and the best one that I know of comes to us from Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter on faith, sometimes called the hall of faith, 40 verses on the faithful throughout time. And it begins with a powerful, powerful definition of trust. In fact, I preached a whole series on just this chapter several years ago. You can go to our website. I think it's actually archived now, so you'd have to send Jody a message, but she can send you a link where you can listen to those messages. It was a series titled By Faith. I think we did it in 18 or 19. And it was a great deep dive into the things that are accomplished in our lives by faith. But this whole chapter starts in verse 1 with this definition of faith. Where the writer of Hebrews says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's a very powerful statement. And you have to look at the words and you have to understand what the words are saying. Because this word faith, it's the Greek word pistis. It's translated as belief, as trust, as confidence. It's also been referred to by the threefold definition, to rely upon, cling to, and trust in. Trust in. That is what faith is. That is what biblical faith is. It is to rely upon, cling to, and trust in. Why does this matter so much? And why does this matter to us as believers individually, but to us corporately as a church? What is our mission statement here at Linwood? It is to reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong, and help them grow in their faith. So we all need to be growing in our faith, growing in the depth of our faith, growing in the constancy of our faith, growing in the size and the fruitfulness of our faith. And our core values, our third core value is that we would leave a legacy of faith. That's the fruitfulness piece. Legacy is different from inheritance. Inheritance has to do with stuff. Legacy has to do with people. Who will be in the kingdom of heaven because of your faith? Because of our faith? 
That's what a legacy of faith is, that we would transmit our faith from one generation to the next, from parents to children to grandchildren, from adults to the children of the church in this family of families. That's the faith that we're talking about. And so just like the wheelbarrow, I've often used a stool to illustrate this. I can look at the stool. I can say, I believe the stool will support my weight. It seems sturdy enough. It's not too wobbly. It's not too creaky. I don't see any issues with the wood. It's not splitting out. Yeah, it looks pretty structurally sound. And I can go on and on about how good this stool is and how convinced I am that this stool will support me. And that if I sit on it, I won't crash to the ground. And yet I have not expressed faith in the stool and its ability to support my weight until I sit on it completely and let it support my weight. And a lot of Christians, I'm convinced, have a lot of intellectual understanding and they have a lot of intellectual, they're convinced that God can, but they've never put their faith entirely in God. They've never gotten in the wheelbarrow. They've never sat on the stool. And that is what faith, true faith, biblical faith is. It is the substance and the evidence. It works itself out tangibly in our lives. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. See, Faith always begins as a gift from God. It's a gift to us. God gives us the gift of faith. And then it's on us to develop it, to grow in it. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. When we are walking in step with the Spirit, when we are following the Spirit through life, when we are asking the Spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us and to remind us of all the true things that we understand from God's Word, then we are growing in our faith. And true faith is a reliance upon God in attitude and action. That's what this is saying. It's, it's manifesting itself in, in real visible ways, even though we're putting our hope and our trust and our faith in something that can't be seen visibly. Faith becomes the substance and the evidence of that. Now, just a few verses later, after that great definition of faith, there's a great declaration about faith. In verse 6, The writer of Hebrews says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. It is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that God exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We have to believe not just in God, but to actually believe God. Believe in his goodness. Believe that he is Good, that he will reward those who seek him with eternity. This isn't health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here. This isn't this idea that if I do enough good, I'll get more good. This isn't saying, you know, if you sow a little bit over here, you're going to get a lot over there. This is saying that God is good, completely good. When we seek him, he rewards those who seek him. When we turn our lives over to his care and control through faith in Jesus Christ, he takes care of eternity for us. And we spend eternity in his presence. Living and walking by faith. Faith is indispensable in pleasing God. Because we must believe in his existence, we must believe in his goodness, we must believe in his ability. And so now I want to look at a powerful case study in faith. And if you've got the book and you've read chapter 5, then you're gonna, this is going to be review for you. If you 
haven't read chapter 5 yet. You need to because he does a lot better job explaining this than I do. And he's got more time to do it than I have. But he talks about Job, and he talks about the story of Job, which is one of the more fascinating stories for me in the Old Testament. Scholars tell us it's the oldest manuscript we have in biblical literature, and that that it even predates the the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that, that Moses wrote for us. That this story of Job predates that. And that Job moves through very difficult circumstances, tremendous lack is introduced to Job's life and his faith is transformed by the journey. And so we're introduced to Job in Job 1, 1 through 3. We're told that in the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, And had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Quite an introduction. And we see that faith for Job moves through several layers as we move through the story of Job. And if you read all 40 chapters, you'll you'll get the full deep dive into this. But for a, you know, 30,000 foot view. We're introduced to a man of great faith. He feared God, we're told. And we see, as Job's story plays out, that his faith moves from a faith of propriety, which we'll define in just a moment, since you probably didn't use that in a sentence in the last week, to a faith of desperation. We all know what desperation is. And ends in a faith of sufficiency. And before we dive too deep into that, I want to be clear that that all of these are good faith to have. Faith of propriety, desperation, and sufficiency. It's not that one is better or worse than the other, not devaluing them, I should say, even though the goal for us and the life without lack follows a deep faith of sufficiency, a deep faith in God's sufficiency and goodness. And we'll see that Job maintained his faith even though it was transformed. And that God, I believe, transforms our faith when we go through difficulties with him. When we go through trials and experiences with him for better or for worse. That that sometimes it's the mountaintop experiences that move our faith forward. Other times it's God's faithfulness to us in the valley that moves our faith forward. But our faith is growing and transforming. And as Willard says, God is more concerned with who you are becoming than in what you can accomplish with your faith. God is more concerned with who you are becoming than in what you can accomplish with your faith. He is concerned with who you are becoming. Are we becoming a people of faith? Are we becoming people who have a deeper, more consistent faith in God? And so let's look at this journey that Job goes on. He starts with the faith of propriety. We're told he is blameless and upright in verse 1. And that really gets to the heart of propriety. Propriety means that you do what is proper. You conform to conventionally accepted standards of behavior and morals. So Job is upright in all of his actions. He's honest. He's got integrity. He's blameless. Nobody can bring a charge against him. And so the faith of propriety could be equated to religious faith, where you obey and you do what is right 
and you're promised blessings as a result. That's essentially what religion says. Do this and this and this and this and you'll get this and this and this. Do this and you'll please God. I've been real clear over the last four and a half years. I believe Christianity is a relationship. On a foundation of religion. The Old Testament has a lot of religion in it. It has a lot of do's and don'ts. All in the context of living a life of faith with God. And that Jesus introduces us deeply into a relationship with him. He calls us into a relationship with him. Where his spirit comes into our hearts and transforms us. And so the idea behind religious faith or the faith of propriety is that God likes to bless and obedience is its own blessing. And when we obey the rules and we obey the laws, that's its own blessing. Things go well in society and in our lives when we follow the rules that God has given us for our lives. When we don't kill each other, when we don't commit adultery, when we don't lie, when we don't covet. All of these things are good for us. And they are their own blessing when we obey. And so that's the Job that we're introduced to at the beginning. He's been living with the faith of propriety for some time. And then there's this weird conversation that develops between Satan and God. And we don't have time to do a deep dive into that, but it's pretty fascinating. And there's this conversation that concludes with Satan saying, you know, does Job serve God for nothing? Or does he serve God for the benefits? Is basically the question that he's, that he's asking God. And the rest of Job tells us the answer. Because Satan's hypothesis is that Job only serves God for the benefits. And if we strip the benefits away, he'll curse you. He'll turn from you. He doesn't serve you for no reason. He serves you for what he gets out of it. That's Satan's hypothesis. And interestingly enough, Job's friends had the same hypothesis. They had this idea of faith of propriety that Job is only doing what is right so he can get the goods. And clearly the presence of lack in his life, the the sudden turn that has taken place in his life, because God says, you know what, Satan, go give it a shot. Let's find out. And everything is stripped away from Job, and he is left with nothing, and he's sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping the boils that have suddenly formed on his body. So it's a very miserable setting. And Job even says in chapter 3, verse 25, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. The faith of propriety is often a faith mixed with fear. What if I mess up? What if I'm not good enough? What if I don't do what I should do? And so this leads Job to a faith of desperation. In fact, in verse 15 of chapter 13, he gets to the very worst place. Yet though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Even if God slays me, because that's certainly the trajectory that Job's life looks like it's on. That he is headed towards a dismal end. And he comes to this conclusion, this desperation, and his faith lasts. His faith holds. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. You don't often see Job thirteen fifteen on somebody's wall, on a plaque, do you? Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And yet that's the faith of desperation 
that Job comes to. It's a desperation and a disappointment that would cause many to lose faith. And yet we see in Job's case that his faith, he, his faith was not only in God's ability to reward him for his good behavior. He chooses to serve God. He chooses to love God even at the point of desperation. And Willard comments on this, saying the life without lack is known by those who have learned how to trust God in the moment of their need. In the moment of their need. A life without lack is all about knowing the unlimited sufficiency of God in the moment of need. He continues, when you have nowhere else to turn except to God and you turn to him, Your faith of desperation will meet the fullness of God and you will taste the life without lack as you discover the depths of the life of sufficiency. It has been said, you'll never know that God is all you need until he's all you have. And I think many of us in America have never been to that point. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can earn a little bit more. We can try again somewhere else. We can look for an answer or a solution somewhere else. We live in a culture in a land of abundance. And so how many of us have really gotten to a place where God was all we had? And I think it's a handicap to our faith here in America, here in a land of abundance. But we see that Job experiences desperation And it doesn't cause him to lose faith. It causes him to move through that desperation to the faith of sufficiency. And by the end of Job, in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 42, he says to God, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The faith has moved all the way to the core of who he is. And the faith of sufficiency actually says, what happens doesn't matter to me. What happens to me does not matter because God is good and eternity is in place. And the things that happen to me, I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to sweat it because God is good and God is with me and God is for me. And I trust him, and I believe, and I can see that God is at work in everything. I think that Paul had something like this in mind when he wrote that famous passage that you do see on a lot of walls. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's the faith of sufficiency right there. The belief that, that in all things, it doesn't just say all good things, it doesn't say most things, it doesn't say many things, it says all things. Even in the lack that we see around us, God can work in that, God can work through that. Even in loss, even in grief, even in pain, even in suffering, God can work in that, God can work through that. And those things can become Subtle and gentle reminders that this world is not our home. It's a blip on the radar screen of eternity. And eternity will be with God in the presence of him where there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. If we really believe that, we don't get so hung up on the things of this life. If we really believe that that's our eternal home, 
and that this is just 70, 80, 90 years? In the scope of eternity, that's not even a tenth of a percent. (laughs) Do we really believe that God is good? Do we really believe that eternity has been secured for us? Because if we do, there is hope and there is joy. And so as the worship team makes its way up here, I was reminded this week of how this has been true in my life. I started out absolutely with a faith of propriety, a faith that if I did the right thing, good things would happen to me. And because of a certain moral flexibility that I had as a young person, I got more focused on just doing a little bit more good than bad (laughs) and not getting caught that became a big part of my focus, was, was not getting caught. And then I was introduced to Jesus, and I began a relationship with him, and things started to shift, but that point of desperation didn't come until about five years ago. I had been in ministry for some time, and I was still operating sort of under the radar of a faith of propriety, that as long as I do the right thing, good things will happen to me, and And when I got to a point where I was at the end of myself and I was mad at God because not enough good things were happening for all the good things that I had done, and I reached the bottom, guess who was there? And guess who reminded me of his constancy throughout it and his goodness throughout it? And I remember writing in my journal, Christ is the constant. He's the constant for this last season of my life that has introduced more pain than I had ever experienced before in my life. And he will be the constant going forward, whether I'm on the mountaintop or in the valley. And he will be the constant for eternity because my life is in his hands. And I had to completely release all control of my life to him. And if you haven't, you need to. This is the way forward. This is the type of trust that we're talking about. We see it in Job. We see it in David as he writes Psalm 23. And I believe ever since then I've been on a journey in the faith of sufficiency. Really trusting God's sufficiency. And it keeps getting deeper and it keeps getting stronger. And it keeps getting more convinced of his goodness And so as we close, I ask you, where are you right now? Which faith resonates most deeply with you? Is it the faith of propriety? That's a great foundation. That's a great start. That draws us into a relationship with a God who loves to bless his children. Do you feel like you're maybe in a season where the faith of desperation, you could be coming to the end of yourself, you could be reaching the end of your known resources, and you might be getting close to a place where God is all you have. That's not as bad a place as it sounds. Or are you in a, a place where you would say, I resonate with a faith of sufficiency. I believe God is good. I believe he is able. I don't think he's stingy. I don't think he's absent or inconsistent. I believe that he is good and that he is with me and that he is for me and that I will be with him for eternity. Wherever you are, I believe God has a next step for us. To move closer to him, closer to the faith of sufficiency, a deep, deep belief that he is good and he is with us and he is for us. 
And maybe it's to share that faith with somebody. Maybe it's to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. And today can be the day of your salvation where you release care and control over your life to the one who cares for you. Whatever your step is, whatever is next for you, I pray that you'll take a step of faith today. And that as your trust grows deeper, you'll experience that life without lack that he longs for us to have. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for who you are, for your goodness, for your grace. We're thankful that you are trustworthy, that we can trust you, and that when we trust you, as our trust and our faith grows, our experience of lack diminishes and decreases. And so we ask you to increase our faith, to deepen it, to broaden it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.